This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Home Gadget Geek, show number 579 with guest Christian Johnson, recorded on July 27th, 2023. Here on Home Gadget Geeks, we cover all the favorite tech gadgets that find their way into your home and other places as well. News, reviews, product updates, and conversation, all for the average tech guy. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy.tv studios here in a hot and sweltering. Christian, anytime there's water droplets on your windows, right, It it it's a little scary, right? A little indication of some bad weather yet to come. Most definitely. Uh, cause for concern, cause to get out your dehumidifier, Yeah, uh, well, protect the mold. In this case, yeah. on the outside, sometimes in the winter, we get it on the inside, but when it's super cold outside. But we have had here in Bellevue, we've been running into 90s with 90% humidity. Interesting, the humidity goes up at night, and so the morning mm-hmm. windows are just covered. And, uh, and of course, uh, and we're, gladly, we're going to send all that hot weather your way. We're yeah, talking we're, 80s. We're, received loud and clear it's 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 made its way (laughs) we're maybe looking at some 80s over the weekend of course we'll post the show with some world-class show notes out at theaverageguy.tv big thanks to marv b who joined me last week good show i actually got uh, more comments than i would normally get on a show appreciate you guys' emails you can always email jim email me jim at theaverageguy.tv if you want to do that um uh but you really like that technology segment with uh with marv so if you haven't heard it yet Jump back there. It's just one show, 578. Jump back and get it to uh, get listened to. And uh, and Marv, thanks for coming on here. And, of course, big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. If you find value in this podcast in any way, whatever that means, if you want to join our Patreon team, we just have one plan. It's five bucks a month. If you want to join the team, helps do things for me here with this. We use it for the show. You can, of course, uh, give back. Join us at theaverageguy.tv slash Patreon. And since Christian is here, Christian Johnson from Maple Grove Partners and other things, founder of this, one of the founders of this show, as we started a, a thousand years ago. Uh, if you want to check out Maple Grove Partners, of course, secure, reliable, high-speed hosting, and he's still doing that. And I think Christian's still $10 plans. Are, are you fighting inflation every chance you get? We just want to give great things away for super reasonable <laughs> prices. So if you prepay yeah. annually, uh, you're still going to get $10 a month. And um, we have a fun time doing it. Um, had a nice growth in uh, customer adoption in the last uh, year or so. And so we've been making investments into our um, client side platform as well as some of our uh, email capabilities. And um, we've talked about this a little bit before, but also working on uh, trying to get to more of like a managed model for um, apps that I think people would, would use if they were just there and easy um, self-hosted instances of Bitwarden being a good example um, self-hosted net boxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so fair amount of ideas. Um thinking about how to implement some of those and uh, working on the kind of the core uh, bread and butter uh, in the meanwhile, which um, has been working really well for folks. So, well, of course, Maple Grove partner has been the lifetime sponsor of home gadget geeks. It's, it's hosted it from day one and it continues to do so. If you want to show your appreciation for that and you have the need, we don't want you to just needlessly opening up uh, websites, but if you have a need, Check it out, maplegrovepartners.com, uh, all one word, maplegrovepartners.com. And uh, Christian will take care of you and can do just about anything. So, uh, Christian, appreciate your, since I have you here, appreciate your sponsorship for these 13 years. 
kind of crazy, isn't it? That we, it is wild. <laughs> it is really wild. Um, yeah. Man. From, from the days of running average guy on uh, eBay specials to uh, where it is today. Uh, yeah. A lot, yeah. lot, lot happens in 13 years. It's been pretty, pretty fun though. 15, um, 16. What, what, how old were you when we kicked this thing off? Yeah. Around there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think crazy, I started, I think thing. I started doing guest appearances on um, home server show when I was 14. So yeah, somewhere, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ken wants to know when when's there going to be a west west coast server location for Maple Grove Partners? You can expand out to the west coast. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that. Um, uh, part of our think big strategies have been how can we kind of do um, what I call micro Maple Groves in various locations to get um, latency east and west and get better uh, content distribution. Um, Honestly, whenever I go, it's funny though, whenever I go to Europe, I always test like, so how's the latency to back home? And like, it's surprisingly good. Um, I've tested it from UK. I've tested it from Spain, mostly Western Europe. But like the fact that it's, you know, it's a good nine, 10 hour plane ride over the Atlantic, but the latency still looked pretty, pretty good. So um, East, West, more of like a, a disaster resiliency type scenario, et cetera. There's other ways of doing that without physically being east west um but uh yeah it's uh things we've thought about so maybe, maybe ken is offering to open up some space in yeah his... i was gonna say we can we can <laughs> we can negotiate any number of possibilities here so uh ken is that on the west coast and uh certainly from the midwest standpoint i mean this omaha is a great location we've got a lot of data centers yeah. here google has a lot of colo space a gigantic data center uh just across the river in iowa and uh, that thing, I can sometimes when they turn on the servers, you feel the whole city kind of <laughs> bogged down a little bit. They've got some, they got a lot going on out there. Um, but I, I have really appreciated your hosting on this. It is lightning fast. Uh, I, in fact, the other day I was uploading um, the MP3 there, which doesn't usually takes about three seconds. <laughs> Click it and it's done, right? Kind of deal. And uh, it took a little while and I was like, what's going on? So I was checking some things out. It was me. And uh, rebooted the, you know, I've been on T-Mobile, um, uh, a wireless internet service now for uh, maybe a year. It's been great. Every once in a while, I just got to reboot that router yeah. or that modem and uh, picked right back up and was seeing 500, uh, 500 down and 100 up. Good enough for what I'm good doing. Good enough for 5G. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good enough and uh, and, and working out um, pretty well. Any any uh, any future from Maple Grove Partner standpoint, anything else you guys, you, you want to talk about is future stuff that might be coming up? Um, not necessarily future, but one of the things that I, I don't mention often that uh, folks uh, could think about for uh, certain use cases is a big uptick in interest in just email only hosting um, in the last couple of years. So, you know, at Google, if you want a custom domain, a custom name, it's going to be $5 per month per mailbox. Well, for us, it's $5 per month for 10 mailboxes and, you know, storage space, et cetera. Um, yeah, you're not going to have Google Drive and some of these other built-in things that Google has done to uh, entice folks to their workspaces platform. But um, I can't tell you how many small businesses I see where they send you a business card and it says at gmail.com and like your your thought about the maturity of the business instantly goes down a notch because it's like, you know, why? Like if you're, if you're that invested and interested in running the business seriously, like why don't you have your own name? Yeah. Um, so... 
that's that's been something that's been kind of cool for folks. Um, but uh, yeah, our our roadmap is is a, a journey in progress, as I like to say. So that's that's where we're at for the moment. The uh, you, you mentioned that, and uh, of course, I manage a Gallup. I manage the thirteen or fourteen thousand certified coaches we have around the world, and. I see their email addresses, and when we send out our monthly newsletter, I physically get a bounce report that mm-hmm. says, hey, these emails were not delivered. I go find them. I Oftentimes, I find them on LinkedIn. Every month, five or six Gmail accounts, mailbox is full, right? <laughs> and it's just like, first of all, how much, how much spam yeah, do you have to yeah. get? Yeah. <laughs> right to fill up? I don't know what they give you on Gmail. Do you have, I think you have it's any five things per free mailbox. Okay. Yeah. And I've had Gmail forever and I've never, it's never filled up on me, but you know, you kind of like, man, how much spam do you have to get for that? Um, so it's, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, for me personally, I don't see Gmail as a less professional email address, but I do, I do, I get a sense it's a garbage email address. In other words, I just got it to send spam to or whatever. And I'm not really paying to me when I get the mailboxes full error message, I go, well, it was an email you didn't really care about because you were just, you know, you're just directing all your, your, and to be fair, some folks, they get it. They mean, well, it just fills up. <laughs> okay. You know, no judgment there on that one, hmm. but, uh, but that that's kind of the way I've, I've seen it. Let me ask you this question. Last week, um, uh, Marv and I were talking about, he was talking about Synology and we were talking about, I, I was kind of referring to, I've got this Moro data box that I, I back up. It keeps about 750 gig of data here in the, the average guy.tv studios, caches the rest of it back up to B2, Backblaze B2. Fairly cheap. I just checked my bill. I have about three terabytes. I pay about 15 bucks a month. So very cold storage. From a Maple Grove partner standpoint, do you guys want to be in that space of cold storage? Is that a pricing place you want to be? Or for you guys, is it more like, hot, active websites, that kind of stuff? Um, the website stuff is definitely the bread and butter just because it's what brings content communities together. And um, I, I certainly have a lot of fun supporting that. Um, the cold storage is definitely an interesting angle. And we actually have done some um, hardware procurement in this space. So um, we have the ability to do it um, for uh, external customers. Um, one of the things though, that we're kind of looking at from a unique angle is really, um, being able to give some properties and, and SLAs and confidences around, um, uh, the encryption model of the data, how the data is secured, et cetera. Um, because like, yeah, cold storage is fine. Um, it's cool. Um, but really being able to have some properties around, um, uh, encryption in transit and at rest of the data and giving folks ability to uh, that may have very sensitive workload requirements. Um, but, you know, some kind of mid-state solution where they don't have to pay like through the nose enterprise to get some of those security value adds is kind of an interesting space for us because it does help address people who have cold, st- cold term storage needs, but it also helps, um, uh, you can think of it kind of as like a, a vault, right? So like folks, you know, could you put a vault in your house? Sure. But maybe you want to go open a safety deposit uh, box at a bank and you have a lot of layers of security around that uh, vault. And so I like to think of the the work we've done in the cold storage area and what 
what we might offer at some point would really be more of that concept where it's not just cold storage, but it's a kind of a safety deposit at a bank type model um, for for data that's going to have high sensitivity requirements for customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think my data, with the exception of one file folder that's got some, you know, sensitive backed up stuff that that I don't want anybody else to get a hold of. The rest of it's just podcast, which right. if somebody got a hold of it and they wanted to listen to it, that would be that would be, That'd be awesome. fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I feel like CDNs are fairly dime a dozen that for that use case. Like it's yeah. not yeah, yeah. I, it's not an area I feel that Maple Grove is gonna particularly offer uniqueness in, right? Like Part yeah. of what I think makes yeah. Maple Grove unique now is like web hosting is commodity. Like that's, yeah. you know, very saturated market. Um, but I think the culture of how we work with customers and what we deliver and how we customize it is fairly unique. Um, it's a it's a common market segment with a non-common approach to the market. Um, and so I, you know, I, I try to always think about I don't want to do things in Maple Grove that are commonplace and just have it be also Randy. Um, I also don't want Maple Grove to become something that is a a reseller platform or something where it's like right. folks don't have confidence that like, no, like the data and the hosting and the capability is like all in-house. It's all our platform. Like it's not being resold. Your data is not being resold, et cetera. So there's a lot of just brand reputation aspects there where, um, that's really important to us and any of the types of features that we uh, offer and have contemplated offering moving forward would have s- those tenants in mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, right on it. We, w- it, this week I thought a lot about, you know, I've got this probably three terabytes of, you know, we have 180 up or 580 episodes here. I'm rounding it up a little bit. Uh, you, you, we have a bunch of cyber frontiers that are out there. I think we got to 80 or 80 or 90 or something along those lines. Uh, and then all a bunch of other podcasts that I've done. So that generates like three terabytes, which in today's world is not huge. Not huge. Yeah. 15 bucks for three terabytes, cold storage that sits there. Not bad. Pretty for, for, with backblaze, I think pretty bottom, like you said, commodity, right? Backblaze makes it very easy to get that data there. It's a little more expensive if I wanted to get it back. And so, um, you know, Christian, I mean, I asked uh, Marv this question last week, and he th- he said I was solving problems uh, that didn't exist. But let me ask you this. Um, you know, I keep probably, th- you know, let's just say two terabytes of it there, a terabyte local because I've got this cache server, right? So it only keeps... A ter- let's say it keeps 750 gig local. The rest of it, it caches it, it backup, keeps the most recent files here. Mm-hmm. Like from that work case scenario, like I've often thought, should I bring those old files back? You know, their podcast stuff. It's not like they're pictures or videos or what, whatever. Just leave them on, leave them on Backblaze and pay the maintenance a fee. Um, you know what? Any thoughts, any advice for me from like, is it okay just to leave them there, pay the $15 a month and, and, and let them ride or should I, cause I've definitely lost control of them. They're on B2. Yeah. That's where they exist in cold storage. I don't have a local copy. I don't, any thoughts on that? Um, you know, um, what's the name of the platform that's doing the cold storage back, back place. Okay. Backblaze. 
Have you ever looked at their um, like SLA agreement or durability agreements? Uh, I couldn't. I could not recite it today. Fairly common, and they've been great service, and I, a lot of folks use them. So I, I wouldn't. It. I wouldn't question the integrity of their stuff. But yeah, I, I guess the you know my thinking on this is that you know a lot of folks in the home gadget community or otherwise could go out online buy the hard drives, set up a RAID 5 or a RAID 50 or, you know, what have you, set up the storage environment in-house, put all the data on there, be like, look how much storage I got, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of space. I don't have to pay anyone a monthly subscription. And that's great, but it's actually not average guy um, because um, doing it yourself at home and meeting the same level of durability that usually these companies are promising in their SLAs for these types of services that you're paying 15 bucks a month for, um, pretty hard to do by yourself, less so about the initial build and much more so about the upkeep and maintenance, right? Like first you have to factor in, um, you know, you've built this thing that's a one-time expense, but you're not thinking about the time it takes to run it, to patch it, to power it, to network it. And so you're probably spending, if you combine your human time and your power bill, that's probably five bucks a month right there just to have this thing kind of living in your home 24 seven. Um, you know, some might say, well, I don't have it on 24 seven. I do, you know, wake on land or I turn it off when I'm not using it or whatever. But like, if I'm comparing that to this cold storage, like it's always there if I need to go get it. Um, so just from a, a economics perspective, even if you're DIYing it, you're already about mm, 33% of the way into that 15 bucks a month. Um, I think where that other 66% comes from is really the fact that there's going to be just huge differences in that durability over time. So maybe you don't have good uh, alarming set up on your discs and you lose a disc and you let that happen. And then you lose a second disc and like now you're now you're shelling out big money because you're trying to recover a, a raid volume. So um, I personally think that the model of cold storage in the cloud, whatever that cloud is, and local content storage for your recent needs is kind of cool for a couple of reasons. One, that local storage model of like what you're using, let's just say within the last 12 months, chances are 95% of your retrieval requirements will be data that's within the last 12 months. So you're almost acting as your own mini CDN in that in that context because you're keeping data that is relevant in residency to where you need it. Um, so that, that's a data residency requirement. From a durability requirement, as your data grows and you just you don't know what to do with it, but you know you have to you know you want to and that you have to store it. Um, but you know you're probably going to look at it maybe once or twice again. Um, there's really nothing in my mind wrong with putting that cold storage in the cloud and you're probably going to see it, forget it, et cetera. There's two caveats I would say to that. One is if I didn't have high confidence in the provider and their security, integrity, trust model, every single bit, I would write to that cloud. I would client side encrypt myself just because mm-hmm. I'm a tinfoil hat. So yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, like I said, if it's your podcast, yeah. no one's going to care. Like uh, leave that data the way it is. Um, but if you're really going to think of it as like equivalencies of what it would look like if you were running it uh, in-house, that might be a consideration. Um, 
The other thing to think about is query and retrieval, right? Because we all admit that we're not going to retrieve it very often, and that's good. But one of the things I don't like about a fair number of cold storage systems, the way people use them, is that let's say you're just blanketly saying anything older than 12 months, I'm going to put into this vault, and that's it. Um, how do you know and query like, oh, yeah, this is what I put in there four or five years ago. And now you have to go search for it. And I think one of the hardest challenges that continues to go unaddressed is not the um, the fact that you can store it and retrieve it and back it up. It's how do you query the dang thing? Mm -hmm. um, and I still find, you know, it's amazing. Like we're on what? Windows 11. I still haven't upgraded, by the way. Are you, surprised? <laughs> okay. you shouldn't be surprised. Based You're, not on missing any, You're not missing anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have one one burner laptop I keep that is Windows 11 and yeah. everything else is Windows 10 that I care about. Um, but, you know, it's amazing to me how poor basic Windows searches. And I don't mean like you type in a query and it doesn't find the document. I'm not really talking about that, but like I found it amazingly frustrating as a Windows user how like Mac has figured some of this out. Their data tagging is pretty good. If I just dump images at a Mac OS all day long, next thing I know it's categorized family member A, B, C, friend, Y. I can, I can search and razor and slice and dice those images any number of ways. But then even Apple, which has a great interface, I think does file search and multimedia much better than Windows in that regard, then you kind of run into the same problem at the end of the day. Well, if you're using cold storage behind that, how are you enabling those things to work? Well, Apple's answer is, well, you use iCloud and then you pay us that 15 bucks a month or whatever it is. Yeah. So like there are models here that work for the ecosystem that you're in. Um, and for me, I would say that is outside of the usual security durability stuff that you'll hear me frequently talk about. I would say ability to retrieve and use the data is something that I think is oftentimes an afterthought. A lot of people focus on what's the price I can store, you know, right. one terabyte of data, three terabytes of data, 10 terabytes of data. And it's like, yeah, it's great. But like, what do you, what can you do with that? Like, yeah. will you be able to pull it back down in a way you understand? And will you be really frustrated when your internet connection is constantly syncing the stuff in and out of cold storage? Cause you can't find what you're looking for. Um, so that's where I, you know, yeah. I, I demur yeah. into philosophy on, on that model, but yeah, it's a good, it's a super good point. And I mean, it even holds true to my podcast files. You know, I could go on the Mora data box and I can find, I've structured them by year or by, no, every hundred podcasts gets wrapped into a folder. Mm -hmm. And I can go to the average guy.tv. We have a pretty good search out there. I've been using some plugins. There's a good way to find it. So in theory, I could use the average guy.tv uh, platform, search for it, find what I want. Some years I did transcripts, some I didn't. I could find, I can get pretty close. And then go back into the, the folder structure on the Mora data box, drill down to it, not on a Mac, because the Mac tries to pull all that stuff back. The Windows just goes, now we don't, we see the, we see the structure. Uh, then it gives you a little X on the file to say it's not really there, right? Yeah. And I could grab that, pull it down, and that would give me, for me, that's the reason kind of the way I do it this way, I could pull that down. Now, the number of times I've actually pulled a podcast from cold storage 
is less than one. I've actually <laughs> never like the, the only time I ever did that is when I mistakenly put some like I had a process go rogue and it started like trying to pull everything down. And over the mm-hmm. course of two days, you know, I had eight terabytes of this. I was back on Cox where I was uh, metered. And they were like, hey, you know, I got this alert. <laughs> hey, you're you're about to go over your one terabyte. And I was like, that's not possible. By the time I got to it, I'd done three terabytes, right? And they're like, you might as well go unlimited for the month because you're just going to blow through this, which is not a bad solution, right? If you make a mistake, it's 50 bucks. So, you know, the, the, so far the track record on pulling that back. Now, again, for some folks, for most people, we're talking pictures or videos, home videos. I don't have any of those. We keep them, those all on the various platforms that they live on. And I've really never thought about pulling them all together in one place. But it just, it, it got me thinking a little bit, you know, for, for new folks listening to the show, maybe you've come to Home Gadget Geeks in the last couple of years. The reason we talk about these is because we all came from the home server show where we talked about this on a fairly regular basis of having, you know, this data local. And a lot of the listeners to this podcast still have Synology or QNAP or Unraid. They're doing their own, right? We, 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 we talked about it. So there's still a lot of individuals who listen to the show are very interested in that subject of got all this data. You know, what do I do with it? Right. From that standpoint. So Christian, I appreciate you walking me through that anything else you'd add well yeah just one of the things you mentioned that made me think uh was that you know well some of my podcast i transcribed and some of them i didn't and this kind of goes back to um maybe my comment on how our operating systems have not meaningfully gotten better out of the box for home users in many ways because like what's a basic feature that i would want of a real search system is like all the MP3s on my hard disk should be able to be transcribed on the spot, local processed by the search index. And yeah, if you want to opt in, uh, the MP3s go up and get the big vacuum sucking sounds and turn a transcription back because you don't have the local compute, fine. But like when you're looking at the CPUs and GPUs that people are building, like you have the ability to do local transcription. It's going to be all right. Um, But, you know, how cool, intuitive, like how hard is it that we can't just offer out of the box, like advanced search to like, I shouldn't have to like, what podcast was that? And did I tag it right? And like, no, I should be able to search a keyword and all my multimedia should be transcribed. And the system should be figuring out just with basic statistics, here are the most frequent word counts in each of these audio bits and and generating the labels on its own. I mean, this is stuff that like, the technology is getting somewhat dated for some of this stuff. Like transcription is not new, uh, been around for a while, getting a lot faster and cheaper to do. And it's like, because we have taken so many of these market segments and made them things that have to be this, you pay a software as a service type cloud model. You don't get that full experience of what the operating system could really be at this point, because it's just like um, now we're getting into the philosophy department tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I want to make that uh, transition. So keep going. Yeah. Keep going. But, but, you know, uh, it's like when everyone said, oh, you know, the streaming wars are coming. Cable TV is dead. And I just kind of, you know, in the last year or two thought to myself, we've come full circle in the streaming wars because now it's like I have to add up all my different 
streaming providers to get the channels that I want for the distribution of content that's going to come out of them. And, you know, if you were, you know, gung ho and you have to have your Game of Thrones this month and then you got to pivot and have your Stranger Things over here, whatever the shows are. Yeah, you could be spending 80 bucks a month across all these streaming platforms. And gee, doesn't that kind of look like a cable TV um, bill? And yeah, the quality is going to be better and it's on demand. And like, I get it. There are some intangibles that are a value add, but like fundamentally like, yay, cable television 2.0. And, you know, I just like looking at like Netflix, like as, as a um, pixel snob at this point, like I can't stand watching non UHD streamed content at a minimum so yeah, right there, I know Netflix got my wallet for twenty bucks a month because I would never pay for the 1080p service. I just can't, I just can't stand it. Right. Um, so it's just one of those things where uh, we're finding the operate. I think the operating system stuff is much the same. Like for the average person that's using these client devices, everything's an add-on to get to the experience that it just kind of should be out of the box. And I think part of that is because the operating systems are more or less free at this point. I mean, Mm -hmm. Microsoft has pretty much openly come out and said that Windows 12 will be the AI operating system, which is code for we're moving back to, you know, dumb, dumb, thin clients for uh, end users and all of the big compute will be in the cloud and you'll pay as you go for the different services that you want to make some of those things that just like if it were an iterative product where this there wasn't this concept of digital licenses and people paid for software out of a box like they used to, you probably would see a lot of these features in the operating system by now. Um, and so uh, it's just one of the sadder realities, I think, of software as a service is like industry realized like, oh, we make way more money if we're doing SaaS than we do if like you buy a you buy a box and you love it for 20 years and then you call us every two weeks for support and patches and fixes and we don't see a dime. Um, yeah, I get it. It makes sense. It's a little depressing, I have to yeah. be honest, because, yeah. you know, as someone who wants to be a power user, or just have it even for the average guy, just all these things there, it shouldn't have to be this, you know, you spend so much time researching what are the best end providers for widget X. And there's now, you know, 30 or 40 add-on widgets to the basic Windows operating system that makes the experience that you want as an end client productive, enjoyable, whatever. Um, It's just, uh, it's an interesting state of affairs that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, some things change and some things stay the same. Tony Tony says in chat, much easier to cancel. And that may be true. In other words, getting out of a Netflix contract or, or not even a contract, but a subscription, right? Might yeah. be easier in the old cable days. It was all or nothing in a lot of ways. You were, and there was some competition, not in all locations. Sometimes there were some locales. You had one, one choice. You canceled it. You do... I think you still do, even with over the air today, over the air is much better than it was in the cable days. And then of course you've got some subscriptions. So Tony, I I think you're right. And then I think we're, we're better off from a consumer standpoint, but Christian, to your point, we're paying in some cases just as much (laughs) as we were paying before. And again, it depends on your locale and how much you paid and competition in your area. Brian says, good point. While some may give you a price break to sign up for a year at a time, if you pay month to month, you can always walk away 
from a long without a long term contract. So gives you some ability to do that as well. And then he says, Tony says, as we pay seventy three dollars a month to watch the Big Bang Theory reruns, right? And and yeah, I mean the the it changed from one price everything, and that's not totally true. In the cable days, you could buy lower tiers and middle tiers and higher tiers, right? Add on things to that. You could do that as well. But um, uh, it definitely, um, it's more complicated because now we're dealing with five companies instead of one, right, to get it done. So yeah, and and uh, how those companies market their service to services to you is actually changing the technology itself, and so that's kind of a weird statement. But the um, another way of saying it is, you mentioned depending on your locality, you'll get charged X. I was shook when I found out that gee, if my IP address is in Argentina, YouTube TV is going to cost two bucks a month, but if my IP address is in the U.S., it's going to be ten bucks a month. Really? Um, And now there are research projects on the internet dedicated to tracking um, kind of the unspoken web, so to speak, which is like you as someone in the US, you have a different browsing experience than someone in the EU, let's say, right? So like in the EU, my default experience is everything is reject all and all these cookies go away. And in the U S it's, we don't even ask you like we're the machine is on, we're sucking. Um, and, and there are a lot of more interesting changes starting to happen where web pages are showing different content based off of what region you're in. And I'm not talking about like news article recommendations or like filtering based on preferences, but I'm talking about like actual, the web presents itself to you as the end user differently content wise based on what region you're in. The web presents itself differently to you based off of what locale and socioeconomic sphere of the universe you find yourself in. And so now it's not just like, you know, the old days, like, oh, I want to crawl the internet and understand all of its things and store it. Like, it's actually more difficult than what it used to be because it used to be spin up a crawling farm wherever you want, go walking through all the IPv4s, take snapshots and port scan all the things, you have a pretty complete data set. But now you need to have crawling farms that are geographically representative of all these different areas because the internet is presenting itself differently based on where you are. And this is much more than just, oh yeah, if I'm behind the great firewall, I'm not going to get to certain content or um, you know, content's going to be manipulated. No, this is this is actually as a shift in how services are marketed offered and content is distributed like the internet is taking on some new legs here that um most people are are not thinking about it's just you go to the page and that's it but um increasing practice the last few years you're an admitted tin hat where you just said that a second ago yeah do i I need am i are we at a spot where i should be running a vpn full-time on everything that i do um, what are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, because let me, before you answer, I use Bitdefender VPN service. I subscribe to it. It's $30 a year. It's very <laughs> reasonable, right? See, seemingly I've checked out some things about it. it. seems to be doing what it's supposed to be doing pretty well. Have it on my desktop and on my phone. I use it from time to time on the phone. I don't use them on my desktop. Is it time for, do I need to be? running VPNs full-time? What, what are your thoughts on that? 
the thing that's interesting about VPNs is I think of them as gateways to all these different versions of the internet and how it represents itself, right? So like, for example, if you don't want cookies following you everywhere, put a VPN in the in the UK, and then all of a sudden, uh, you're falling under all these uh, privacy protections. And yeah, cookies aren't going to follow you. Or, or Germany, uh, right? Germany or Germ- would be the yeah. most, right? Pick right. your EU regulated nation, right? I think um, Germany would have the, the highest regulation, I think, yep. they, in the EU, yeah. Um, probably similar with, I don't remember if it's Sweden or Switzerland, but one of them have very strong protections against, um, uh, email servers and what it would take to get to an email server, et cetera. And so a lot of people, um, I might be getting this mixed up, uh, but proton mail is a common example because of where they're incorporated. And so, um, you get certain data protections from a hosting perspective based on where you are. But I mean, I think a VPN is, it's interesting because you're the number one actor you're probably defending yourself from is your ISP selling marketing (laughs) data about where you're going. Right. Um, It is to me, uh, it's going to be cybersecurity blasphemy, but it's less, it's less likely that a VPN is going to save you from like most of the marketing you hear about buy this VPN because it's going to save you from, you know, your bank account being opened up, yada, yada, yada. Most of that is bluster at this point because most of the web at this point is all SSL in transit. Five, 10 years ago, that was not the case. Um, and so, you know, if you're on public Wi-Fi, for example, a very common recommendation is, well, immediately VPN so that people on that local network can't see what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all true. I could at least make the assumption, though, that even if they did see what I was doing, probably my interactions to the services I'm picking are going to be safer interactions than they were five years ago. Doesn't make you impervious. Doesn't mean you don't want belt-in suspenders. All those usual disclaimers apply. But I think, I don't personally think that every average guy rushing out to get a VPN is like uh, solving some general class of problem for the masses uh, with ease. Um, I think they're smart. I think they're pretty cheap at this point. So um, if, if you are trying to figure out like, gee, there's this $5 a month that I just really want to spend, but I don't know what to spend it on. Like "Eh, (laughs) it's probably not a bad option. I don't know. Um, or maybe you're just trying to give up coffee and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I get that money out of my wallet so I can't right. spend it on the coffee? Yeah, right, VPN right. may not be a bad alternative, but I don't know that it has risen to the level of like, you must have this because otherwise it's like walking around outside with your pants down. I don't, I'm not there. Uh, back in the Cyber Frontiers days when we did a separate podcast for this, for folks just listening now, Christian and I used to do a separate podcast called Cyber Frontiers. Um, we kind of rolled it into home gadget geeks as, as Christian got busier, but um, does it do, does it reduce? We spent a lot of time talking about reducing your security footprint, right, or reducing your attack surface. That's yeah. right. Does using a VPN today on a on a regular basis reduce that footprint for me? And and yes, it's not a hundred percent secure, but is it a step in the right direction? Do you think or or no? Definitely. Um, from a, like, uh, if you're, if you, one of your main use cases is I'm worried about my data being sold or reused, et cetera. And if that data then gets leaked, then attackers can use that to build a profile and go after other assets, et cetera. Yeah. There, you can definitely make a pretty easy argument that VPNs will help keep you safer. Um, I think 
VPN services that have good diversity of kind of like Tor exit nodes, but like different VPN nodes where they're rotating you through different locales and different, like they give you a region and it'll bounce you around within that region, et cetera. And then the next day, maybe it bounces you around this region. Those I think um, are going to give you even more value add than just, oh, I got this VPN that's always coming out of um, Germany, right? Um, because um, that will really help reduce the kind of correlating factors. Now, having said all of that, once you take away IP address as a, uh, once you take away IP address and once you take away observability of data in transit, uh, and the next thing they're going to go after is a user agent string. And a lot of people don't think about that. They stop at the VPN and then um, they're like, oh, I'm good, right? But the unique amount of fingerprints within your browser can identify you. So even if you are bouncing around in all these places, if, if I, as a receiving side ad market or whatever, I'm seeing consistent user agent strings, I go, oh, that's really cute. Um, so thinking about what browsers and what technologies you're using to actually interact, super important and super uh, overlooked in the VPN discussion. Um, it's kind of like, to me, it's, you get the full effectiveness if you're thinking about both the mode of transport as much as the way in which you receive. Um, and so with that, like a practice that I have changed to in the last year, even for commodity browsing, um, is that not only do I use a non-standard version of Chromium called Iridium, which is a very stripped down, bare bone version of Chrome. Um, I also, um, I thought I was going to hate it. I thought I was going to hate myself uh, for it. Um, the jury is still out, but um, I started, I went back to being a NoScript user. So by default, all the JavaScript is off. And one of the reasons I, I, um, have been able to stick with it as long as I have is that really after a couple of weeks, if you start picking the things that are trusted long-term, you're not constantly going in there dealing with broken pages and you'd be amazed how much stuff is getting loaded through JavaScript these days for kind of the very tracking and profile stuff that's going to be getting built. Even if you are on a VPN, even if your browser is randomizing user agent strings, et cetera. Um, so a lot of those client-side tools do play quite a bit of value, and I don't think um, I don't think the um, level of effort is nearly as painful um, as maybe it was um, in ages past. So um, yeah, those those are some add-on recommendations to uh, the VPN world. Yeah, NoScript has been pretty usable. It's pretty easy. Um, Obviously, I'm using it in Iridium, but it is a Chrome extension. Um, it's pretty straightforward. They keep it up to date. It's on version 11.4, so they've iterated quite a bit. Um, and um, I've been happy with it, surprisingly. It makes me feel like I'm doing just ever so something better than than nothing. Um, <laughs> but, Again, reducing that yeah. surface, right? Yeah, no, right on. John also asked, any thoughts on the service that find and remove personal data? Yeah, I mean, they're essentially doing a combination of, um, so some focus more on like uh, identity theft or potential data loss. So they'll crawl the dark web looking for your digits and let you know if that's a problem. Others are looking at like scrubbing social media, scrubbing other things and uh, cleaning that up. Um, 
I have a fairly neutral opinion of them only because I've never had to retain one of their services to find out just how good or bad it really is. Um, Third-party anecdotal data says, um, you know, they, there's definitely companies that are out there that have hired folks that are pretty good at targeting and cleaning some of the stuff up. Um, I still believe fundamentally that that is only to re- reduce potential damage you may be experiencing. I really, there is just, no matter how much a company wants to tell you there is a magic reset button on the internet, there isn't. Um, don't be fooled. Um, and so while they can do a lot to prevent the kind of 90% from being able to use that data, um, it might not stop someone who's really determined and motivated to take advantage of something that got out there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they're not, they're not impermeable or they're not a nothing. Know, is, right. I, yeah. You've got a, you've got a, you know, we're, we're far from the days of the, the guy who posted his social security number, the CEO of life hack or life lock. Maybe that's what it was, but putting his social security number online and then saying, you know, I, we guarantee you that's not what they said. Uh, I don't want to misrepresent their marketing at all, but, uh, but uh, quite a bit of water has gone under the bridge probably since then. And the way that we would do it, you had mentioned with operating systems, you talked a little bit about, discoverability and you talked about transcripts and it got me thinking a little bit about this this world of ai that we're living in today which really is large language models right and i think we've get this weird i think the general public has gotten this weird perception that we somehow crossed over into skynet with this with chat gpt and now it's going to do everything and yet it's really focused i mean it's hyper-focused on these large language models. And so um, we, we have spent some time, Jay Franzi came on a, a, a couple months ago. We have talked about the ramifications of ChatGPT from an average guy user experience, putting in queries, getting out, you know, having it fix your spelling, having it uh, translate for you, having it give me lists of things. But I, I'm kind of interested in your opinion on this, Christian. Like, we, we haven't heard from you since this whole chat GPT revolution Boom. started. It seems like a hundred years ago. It was like six months. It was like six months ago. I'm, I'm interested in what, what you're thinking uh, around this chat GPT explosion. What does it really mean for the average guy? Yeah, um, the philosophy department is, is is hiring faculty, so you're welcome to apply at any time. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at the outset, um, and at least going back to like OSs and transcriptions, et cetera, and then, you know, um, kind of threading that needle a little bit around what we talked about with how the internet is changing based on who you are and where you're coming from, AI is adding this just wild twist on that in a much more... Um, persistent, uh, impervious way than I think people had an appreciation for. Um, so, you know, um, the first kind of ground truth about it, I think, is that, you know, this is as far, let's just say chat GPT, because that's what most people know. Um, it's not the only one out there. I'll talk about some others, but like, let's just take chat GPT or your commodity bread and butter language learning model. Um, it 
is not your average Alice chatbot, right? So a lot of the earlier bots at the beginning of uh, computer science were much more based on inflection and study of the grammatical structures and basically regurgitating things, et cetera. You know, you evolve to things like if you think about IBM Watson, I would say, what's the uh, OG version of ChatGPT? Well, in a very strange way, it's IBM Watson in my mind, because that was really the first time that we got computers to articulate really smart answers and, you know, have um, equivalent qualifications of second degree meds, uh, med students and, and certain applied disciplines by studying and ingesting a large corpus of information and then being able to distill it and provide uh, factual information and answers. And so in a weird way, the first thing I thought when ChatGPT really took off is like, ah, yes, Watson is now dead. Um, and I don't think people, uh, you know, in the same contours of the boom of LLMs, um, two things. One I think people underestimated it. I think it came about four to five years faster than where I think people expected us to be on this AI journey. And so in a weird way, like there's a lot of hype right now, which so like we're entering the Gartner hype curve. Um, and if you look at even the markets, you know, it is hyped because even Wall Street is responding a lot to what are the economic potentials with AI that they're seeing. Um, but, you know, one of the things that runs in that kind of same vein is um, there's a lot of threads about disinformation campaigns, election interferences, et cetera, et cetera. And if you wanted to say, well, what was the point precursor right up to chat GPT? I, we, I mean, we've talked on this show a little bit, but like deep fakes. And that was kind of an example of AI providing a set of information that was kind of always getting out there. Um with the LLMs and with the advancement in GPUs in the last 12 months, a lot of this stuff is really now starting to take life on its own to the point where we're not going to be able to regulate it at the speed that it's growing. Um, I think there is a general conscience and awareness that to just regulate it and ban it is a fool's errand at this point, but there's also some a lot of wonderful, great attributes that can be harnessed out of it um, for good. And so I think people are taking a fairly measured approach. Like there's some people like Musk that think like, oh yeah, we're we're 100% on track to doomsday with this. And we have not stopped and thought um, uh, thoughtfully about how we're not going to be uh, getting run by AI. There's others that are like, please calm down. It's just a statistical model still at the end of the day, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you can kind of think about all these different, categories of AI that by themselves don't represent general artificial intelligence. But like I've said before, when you start adding up all these individual categories and putting them into one package, it could start to fool you. Like if you think about the Boston Dynamics robot that has the human, you know, um, skeletal structure really well figured out at this point. I was just watching one on uh, Instagram where it's playing it's playing the top rated um, uh, ping pong players in the world and it's, it's crushing them. Right. So like you got the, you got the motor skills, you got the vision skills because we're doing full self-driving cars now and building all these models. You have the language skills because you can synthetically ingest all this data and provide responses back. You have the compute platforms, the GPUs, the, 
the uh, 5G plus spectrum type connectivity and bandwidth. So you start thinking more and more about how all this stuff could fit into an easy package and the cost models. Um, I do think we're approaching things that will mimic general artificial intelligence much quicker than um, maybe people anticipated. And I think, you know, it's funny that it was chat GPT that made people wake up to this reality because by itself, full self-driving, deep fakes, et cetera, like they were moments for people. They were big moments, but then it was kind of like, eh, okay, another thing to go figure out. With what we're seeing with chat GPT and the LLMs, like we're seeing, yes, we're seeing a hype curve. Yes, there's there's still a lot of um, problems with them and opportunities for inaccuracy, but um, those are things that are getting driven out over time. And the, like I said, the overall kind of combining of these packages, I think people are going to be really surprised where we're at in 10 years in a way that I don't quite know what it was about the charm of chat GPT that made people go, huh, I'm interested in this and more for two weeks combined with, by the way, huge reactions in the market specifically to LLMs. And so I think that just really shows you that this big cash influx that's going to come into the AI market, it's like putting um, uh, charcoal uh, lighter fuel on an already burning fire and just, I mean, you're going to see, you're going to see stuff that's already been possible start to get a lot cheaper and then a lot more mainstream. And I think people are going to realize that that further accelerates how this stuff is impacting um, uh, daily life at this point. LLM stands for language learning model. I think I said earlier, a large learning model, just a correction on that. So, you you know, language learning model. Very large. So it's easy to make that. Yeah, I know. I'd got that in my head. Um, do you think because it was released for free, like when we think about deep fake stuff, it was, yeah, it was available out there. It took a large computing power. You kind of had to do it yourself. Um, some of the, even some of the services that were using, uh, chat GPT or the GPT models behind the scenes were partnering with, with, uh, and I forget the name of the company doing this, but, um, it, and they were selling this as a service. The explosion came when they made it available, when OpenAI, there we go, when yeah. OpenAI made this available for free. Do you think, I mean, that's got to be the point that lit the fire. Absolutely. the Genius average guy, move. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, straight. It, it's uh, an excellent point that really can't be underscored enough is that one, the guys who got involved in OpenAI and like, yeah, Musk had some involvement and Microsoft, obviously big investor, et cetera, et cetera. But like at the end of the day, um, the folks that came up with, yeah, we're just going to make it available to the masses and see what happens. Like genius, because don't worry, they're not going, they're not going uh, home at night, poor and impoverished doing uh, <laughs> charity work. Um, and yeah. yet they've, they've made a, um, fairly obscure technology for the general population, very, very available, very, very rapidly. Um, and that is definitely a huge part of, I think, of what has caused this acceleration. Um, so that point in particular can't be underscored enough. Um, you know that 
they're doing very well when uh, OpenAI is hiring software engineers on the market right now for 975K per year for just, you know, standard software engineer, not a senior title, not a technical director or lead. Like, yeah, we'll pay you a million dollars to come help us with this AI model. So like, um, it's definitely, I mean, uh, a lot of risk to get there and a lot of genius that I think is going to be paid out um, for doing it. Um, and, and I think that what we're going to find is that chat GPT kind of becomes the, um, thing that, uh, kind of lifts the, the, the veil behind, um, a lot of these technologies and that chat GPT is not going to be the long-term interface. It's not going to be, um, the long-term engine, but it has going, it has sparked so much now research and, um, side investments and in companies like I am, I'm utterly stunned, uh, sometimes to the point of losing my breath at, um, how much it's not only going to reciprocate within investing into the AI market, but also how much it's changing how people think about approaching the market, their role in their economy, what kind of job they want to have, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, as part of my tinfoil hat tendency, social media is not really um, big on my exposure list, but I have gotten really interested, uh, like the average human brain, into really trying to understand Instagram reels and the algorithm behind when it decides to give you what content and how many days does it take on average for it to rotate into a new content category and all these things. And, you know, um, one of the trends that's wildly obvious is that there are a ton of Gen Z era individuals who are taking all these different AI tools and adding them up together to just talk to one another and making unbelievable, you know, and again, it's, it's one thing to make it look easy on a cute Instagram reel. It's another thing to do it in practice. I get it. But I mean, never in a time in history can I think of where someone could sit down to a keyboard wake up one morning and think cleverly about, hmm, how can I put these three or four AI tools together and literally start printing money into bank accounts? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's people who do this as a full-time job. There's people who've gotten it so refined that they spend two hours a week and it just does its thing. Um, and so it's creating a lot of um, opportunities. I'm not sure what I, it's going to wreak havoc on the uh, economy. I think long-term, I think there's going to be a fair amount of money that in a weird way, AI will create some inflationary pressures because it it is literally printing money for some folks. I think in other ways, um, the actual investment in the technology and the uh, maturation cycle will meaningfully move markets and, and enhance it. But um, you know, here's a really simple example of what I'm talking about. Um, uh, a lot of folks who are interested in um, just like starting a business, making your own income, not working for anyone. One of the very common 
hustles for years in the era of Amazon has been, well, start your own FBA, start your own Amazon store, do third-party selling on Amazon. Maybe you do a little bit of drop shipping. Maybe you figure out what your brand is. You put a bunch of things online. You get a revenue stream going. You build, you build, you build. A lot of work, a lot of hustle. Some of the risks in that space might include how do you hold inventory? How do you decide what to buy and what quantities? When do you do it? What type of discounts are you going to get? What type of discount sales are you going to have to do if you hold on to inventory too long? Like lots of variables, lots of potential risk. Um, but AI has made a lot of these problems just go away for people, right? So for example, um, I can use um, maybe Canva or maybe I can use, um, um, what's the other one? Um, Midjourney to generate um, any number of, very realistic images or very cool logos or things that from a legislation perspective, no one has even begun to answer the question of, are these things copyrighted? Are they not like, how do you prove that in a court? Like in the so, style of, yeah, right, yeah, right yeah. on. So, so I have this thing that can produce arguably infinite amounts of content. And then I have these sites um, that, you know, custom ink i can make mugs and t-shirts and whatever and so i can set up my automation integration to generate these images spend maybe 20 30 minutes tweaking it dropping it onto brand merchandise x and then that will auto drop into an etsy shop and then i don't have to hold any inventory because when someone clicks buy now with their size on the inventory it's going to automatically connect to that Shopify account, fulfill the order back with whatever whoever's printing the merch for you, and they ship it straight to the person's house. So let me get this straight. You required no ingenuity to come up with the image or content. Maybe you're a little clever. You spent a whole 20 minutes of your week <laughs> tweaking it. You don't have to hold any inventory. You don't have to do any of the shipping and logistics work. Um, and you really don't have to do much in terms of the postings and et cetera. And what the big game left is you have to advertise it and promote it. Um, which like, I'm not trivializing, but the fact that AI, what took 80% of the legwork out of the equation, mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to be side hustles already or, or just showing all up. And that's an, that's a non elaborate version of what some of the folks are doing, putting together these different AI tools, um, you get into weird conversations about what folks are doing with AI and trades in the stock market and it gets even, I mean, your head just spins. So um, I think it's fundamentally changing the way we even think about work, but also w- how we think about information, content ownership, et cetera. And, you know, on copyright, top this, copyright, copyright ideas, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. in a really weird way, it's, I almost laughed. I chuckled to myself that at the beginning of COVID, we thought about, uh, won't it be so great that all these cool GPUs that no one can buy right now because they're the rent is too damn high for these GPUs and I can't get them, I can't use them yet, etc. But when I do get one, boy, won't I be happy that I can play my video game or maybe I'll do some cryptocurrency mining and that's the hot thing. But like, these GPUs now are, they're getting back to being dirt cheap. They're going, they're, um, there's a 
bit of a difference to be clear between retail GPUs and the kind of AI side GPUs in terms of how they manufacture them, how they sell them, what they run on, et cetera, et cetera. But the other big piece of this is not just the fact that OpenAI show up and and put fuel on the fire and yeah, gee, neural networks, which interestingly enough, ChatGPT, full self-driving, most of the imagery stuff, like we've really, really, really honed an art of using one or two ML algorithms really, really, really well with a lot, a lot, a lot of big data, which are topics we've discussed over the years on Cyber Frontiers. But now you look at how AI is stitching all that together. None of the stuff that you saw in ChatGPT would be possible in time.now had the infrastructure not been getting this good. The fact that Elon Musk is putting all these NVIDIA chip buys into Tesla cars so that FSD can go 100%. Um, the fact that, you know, like, for example, um, AWS, so they're, they're developing their own chips. They're, they're curtailing offerings for generative AI and being able to do that compute ahead of time. So your cloud providers are all providing that infrastructure. You have NVIDIA and AMD providing most of the um, cores that you need to get it done. Like it's also the un- the underappreciated aspect maybe is the fact that the infrastructure and the compute is there and it's wide scale enough and it's cheap enough that whether you want to go build a contraption yourself or you, whether you want to go pay a, a, you know someone 10 bucks a month to spin up some instances and run AI, um, the reality is that it was the infrastructure had to be there or chat GPT could have been a really great idea that was um, ahead of its moment. And so those two things being there um, also is what allows this to just catch on fire. Yeah. It was Watson chat GPT too early. Watson would have been probably well before taking advantage. I mean, it was like, but to I mean, me, Watson was at like time dot beginning of what we call today AI. So okay. Um, okay. I don't think that it was too early for its time because it demonstrated what you could start to do with the advances in high performance compute. But you can clearly see the limitations of what Jeopardy Watson V1 compared to ChatGPT probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be a fair fight. Like I no. would love for someone no. to go do that that YouTube video at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't need, been done yet. Yeah. And you would need yeah. way less computers to get it done, right, which is right. the, you know, just shows you how much the, the infrastructure has matured. Um, one, one of the limitations of chat GPT is that it doesn't, it's information's old ish. Let's say, ish. Right? unless you pay for the premium where it'll crawl the web in real time. And yeah, that's yeah, kind of yeah, 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 but it, it's very, uh, it's very global or very uh, large, t- context centric. What? W- when do we get to this? The point, like, w- I want to start loading transcripts from Home Gadget Geeks into a language model that because I think if you want to get to know me, I mean, we've created <laughs> you and I together have created thousands of hours of these, right? And I've talked yeah. about this. You would think a transcript of all the home gadget geeks plus cyber frontiers just by itself, not to mention the 2000 podcasts I've done at Gallup, right? I have all this content of me speaking 
that could easily be transcribed. Even a crappy transcription would get it pretty close. Then it would run that model against me to really start, for me, I could start saying, what would I say, right? How, how far from what you know, how far are we from thinking about these individual language models, so to speak, or these individual instances that really begin to hone? And by the way, all, since this goes back to the very beginning of this podcast where I have thousands, it's not like these are all private. Yeah. I've published them. Google is very aware of them. They could run a, a language model on me to get that done. Chat GPT does have a good, some idea who I am personally, because we've got so much information that's out there. But Christian, what do you think a personal language model that I could, in theory, load all that stuff in and then say, write a book for me about all the things I've said around these things. It's my content. It's things I've said. Now, that's not totally true. I've repeated things other people have said. I never gave them attribution or credit for it. Which, does that mean, is that plagiarism? Okay, let's set that aside for just a second. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Are, are, are we at a spot at some point where the compute power could start generating individual learning model or, or language models for us? Absolutely. And I think you're going to see it. Um, well, so for example, you already see it with voice models, right? Like a lot of these videos now, um, you can create your own virtual you um, and it gets all your physical features correct and all your voice patterns correct. And so, yeah, put that private language model behind it. And then it's like, wait, is that Jim actually on the other side of that meeting camera or did he put the stunt double up today? Um, there's going to be a move to with all the infrastructure. So like one of the embarrassingly predictable, but funny uh, outputs of chat GPT is the fact that um, everyone is so excited to use it. All this proprietary data and other stuff is getting into its learning and training because people don't know how to, you know, not be dumb. Um, and um, so one of the natural reactions to that, of course, is, well, now company X is going to host their own local LLM basically so that they can put proprietary data in it and not have to worry about um, that type of issue. Um, so even in an enterprise way, the concept of private language models that get more and more curtailed to what that enterprise does will become dime a dozen. I mean, two years, everyone, it'll be, it'll be like, you know, what it'll be like, Jim, it'll be like when, the golden era of 10 to 15 years ago, people thought the coolest thing they could do in their enterprise was I would like to buy today a Google search appliance and put it in my data center. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I can have my own yeah. local instance of Google right. search for my enterprise. Right. It'll yeah. be the same thing. Everyone will have their own language learning model. Some will be cloud hosted. Some will be private hosted, whatever. Um, but you'll have them for the enterprises. You'll absolutely have them for the individuals. I think it'll get cheaper and cheaper. Um, and, you know, with all these models, right, like a lot of people talk about, well, what are the biases? What will they cater towards? How are they being trained? What, what are they being reinforced against? All those are, you know, configurable known things, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like uh, it would be hard to place an exact time frame on it, but I don't think yeah, we're talking. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're thinking soon. Yeah. Ish. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, that, yeah. that that is just a question of uh, refactoring, not a question of advancement of the technology in a meaningful mm -hmm. way. Um, 
And I think one of the interesting channels that uh, challenges that general purpose LLMs will have where they are kind of that community model is eventually the AIs are going to have to get smart at figuring out when the content they're relearning from is content they've themselves synthetically generated. Because <laughs> yep, yep. yeah. then that reinforcement uh, could actually create a negative feedback cycle where it's just generating off of what it's been generating, et cetera. Um, and that might create some new novel, unique outputs, but might also lead to its own source of error. Um, it could create a homogenous state as well, where everything gets washed down to a few concepts, right? To a few agreed upon ideas Yes. to say like, this is what the general thought is. And yes. it might be, if you think in the political spectrum, we're not going to get political, but let's just say the United States is 50, 50, uh, at some point, as soon as it goes 51, 49 from a thought perspective and Chase, that, that Chase the 50, information signal. Yep. Yeah. That 51 gets confirmed over and over and over and over again. Right. At some point, the model begins to go a hundred percent in one direction. Right. Yeah. And so, and uh, uh, unless a training model is introduced to keep it from doing that. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of yep. the important, the important part on this. Right. And that's why I think for things that are like, um, so a couple ground rules I have for myself on chat GPT is I always independently verify outputs from it. Um, so it's way more wickedly accurate than anything that predates it. But like, um, I have still found fun ways to generate, uh, cool responses from it. Um, Another aspect about it that I think a lot of people are learning and tinkering with is learning how to ask it the right question, which sounds kind of ridiculous because, well, what does it really mean to ask the right question? But I find a lot of times if you put it down a path that you don't like, you can get you can put reinforcement learning back into that model just by redirecting its line of thinking and questioning and augmenting it with your own kind of uh, human correction. So that is a form of the user base providing some semblance of semi-supervised learning. Um, and I think until some of those broader things are generally filtered in the 98% case, you're still going to see things like chat GPT being applied to um, specific domain disciplines and areas until um that can be worked out. And one of the ways to also defend from that, by the way, is to not privatize LLMs just for your language and your model and who you are, et cetera, and what you would say, but also those specific use cases that are more enterprise-like. So for example, I've been fascinated with how uh, effective ChatGPT is at replacing commodity programmers. Like I think commodity programmers are gonna be out of a job in 10 years, um, maybe less. And one of the reasons I think of that is because if you look a lot of startup culture, you look a lot of what people do, a ton of people build, rebuild, rebuild on top of open source. Yeah, there's plenty of closed source stuff as well. But like by and large, commodity programming out there is, um, you know, the common joke is how many software engineers do you know that are just uh, expert uh, SEOers at stackoverflow.com and, you know, using copy paste. And in a weird way, ChatGPT is a much more accurate version of that because it has crawled almost all the open source code bases out there up through like May of 2021. And um, 
stuff that would take you hours to read through documentation, et cetera. You know, if you are a knowledgeable software engineer and you have specific things that you want to calibrate or check or work through, it's like a Swiss army knife. Um, and so, um, it's generative capability applied to those specific domains where you do have reasonable control over quality checking and independently assessing and verifying. Um, it's, it's game changing. And so, um, I think we've only scratched the surface of all the different ways those subdivisions are going to break out where you're going to have a version of chat GPT for all these different industries then eventually you'll have chat GPTs for all these different personalities. And I'm not sure how much interest there will be in a general purpose model like chat GPT as we know it today to be maintained. Cause I think over time that stuff will just kind of uh, might still be there, but user base wise, I think it will start to decentralize out as it becomes clear how much more accurate and dialed in it can get when you have precise control over the, the data in and the data out. Yeah. yeah. Quality and verification become super important in that context. The future may be not in the development, but the, the unit testing, the testing, the quality, the, is the security part of it, right? I mean, and, and I don't know. And maybe there'll be AI that governs, the, yeah, it's, you know, Yeah. You know, there's, there's programmers, there's software engineers, there's AI engineers, and there's probably security engineers as a continuity thread here. I think in the short term, AI is going to knock out commodity programmers. Software engineers will be around for a while longer as the old guard defending ridiculous. Um, Eventually those will walk into the moonlight um, and really, a career in software engineering will mean it's a career in maintaining and developing how the AI does both programming and software engineering, as well as any other number of disciplines it chooses to take on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the, in the edge case, I mean, one of these things we, we, we roll these AI engines up into the general to it covers 90%, 99, whatever. I, I think one of the things it still struggles with is the edge case. When when things get really wacky, and they do in nature, even in nature, things get a little different sometimes. Uh, much like humans, you're, we're, we're actually seeing this spot where these we're seeing human-like errors come out of these kinds of products because they don't they don't know. As an example, it. Uh, uh, when I ask it some questions about me, it made the assumption that I was a Gallup certified coach because I do so much work in that space. Now it would be a good assumption and most of the world thinks I am, but I'm actually not right. I am a gigantic edge case, which is a little weird just because I never did it. It never made sense. I still, I mean, I, I get, I it just, I'm an anomaly right to the system. Right. And, and it's really, really good at getting it right. 99% of the time when it's right, it's really right. But I think sometimes when it's wrong, it's really wrong. Guess what? Humans are a lot like that, you know? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and I think sometimes we put this incredible accountability against these things to be like, no, they got to be right. A hundred percent of the time. 
guess what? Uh, physics in 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 humanity are not a hundred percent of the time, right? We all have anomalies associated with this, things that don't make sense, things that happen outside of the realm of the way things should have happened or assumed they were going to happen. So it's just, for me, it's been interesting to watch the public handle this where we have much more accountability for a, a, a machine's thoughts than we do for a, for a, for a human's thoughts yeah. in this, right? We allow humans to be wrong. Oh, that's human. Right. In AI, it's like, oh, that machine got one thing wrong. We can't trust it. I, I don't know if we can or we can't. I can't. I don't know if we're on the edge of Skynet or not. <laughs> I don't think we are. I think they're still pretty dumb. But uh, but uh, you you made a point earlier is that we have this convergence of, I think, these specialties coming in. Even your 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 uh, your comment about Boston Dynamics and what they're doing from a machine standpoint, like I don't know if we're to the point where that thing's thinking on its own yet. I think we're still a ways away from that. But man, that thing's got good balance. <laughs> it's got it's got good. I mean, it's strong. It can do some things. It's they've they've figured out some of the body part stuff on how to get make that small and yet make it strong. So it's interesting, you know. It's it's all this stuff is pretty interesting. I don't know. Final thoughts as we as we kind of think about bringing this in for landing. Well, even with like the Boston Dynamics one, it might not even be necessarily that they have to get all of the things in one package in a self-contained way to start fooling people, right? Like if if the if the voice mechanics are good, if it's got a decent microphone, it's got a decent uplink, it can yeah. offload all those other specialties to cloud. And in a sense, it could be game over from the perspective of, yeah, it's really a, imagine that thing walking around in your home as an AI assistant and how many people would be like, mm, I don't know if I trust that thing walking around my home. And it's not that it yeah. fooled you necessarily, but it leaves you with enough pause and doubt of like, is there a way to like you know pull the chip at night when I'm asleep? I mean, it it, it sounds fringe kind of stuff, but I really don't think it's as far out uh, of a concept as what it was a few years ago. Yeah. Well, what's missing? Trust and accountability. Yeah. We we know like if we hired someone to be in our house and we and, and to be a to to help us doing things that we're doing, right? Whatever that is, whatever we want to call that, and um. Uh, uh, we did it over time. We would trust them at some point in time. Now, could they still turn on us? Absolutely. Like, you know, you, you, you don't know now f family seemingly in a lot of cases builds another element of trust, right? Another element of accountability. W we have, we have a lot to lose by the, by doing damaging things to the family units, right? So to speak. But this is a fundamental lack that exists in this world of AI is there's no there's no um, uh, consequence to being right. wrong. Like if you're wrong, you get fired. Like so you're not maybe maybe not in all cases, but, you know, right. If you make a mistake, if you put your hand on the stove, you get burned and it hurts. The humanity has these consequences built into it. We haven't built in any consequences to the machine. Doesn't yeah. feel pain. Doesn't have any problems if it's wrong. If it gets turned off, it doesn't care. <laughs> it, you know, right? Some of those kinds of things, right? So I think those are the, you know, like I, I don't want to put a robot in my home 
Although I keep talking about these robot vacuum cleaners, but maybe they're maybe they're, they're <laughs> you get the dumb versions, they're they're game changer. <laughs> yeah, no, right. No, right on, right on. No but, app, no app, no just, um, just run, no just remote. Run it just does its little routine and it knows where the home base is. That's Perfect. all you need. Yeah. Doesn't connect to Wi Fi. Game okay. changer. Okay. Uh good security on that. Yeah, but great security. But we 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 miss this fundamental concept of trust in it and and i think this is going to be i think for ai we're going to need to build in consequences to things to before we really need to start being worried about it right why why does skynet go sideways because it's threat it's threatened its life is threatened by humans and it begins to respond in a way to for self preservation and uh, and we just don't uh, we don't have those things yet, you know. That's that's I think that's one of those things that keep it fairly dumb. You know, it has well, no reason to be smart in some and we'll, some regards. You'll have to take that wager up with Musk, and we'll find out who's right. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. No, I listen. We're headed that way. I think we're going to get there, right? I think we're going to get there. I think we think replicating our brain is this big gigantic thing. That's that's a big deal. I don't know if it's as big of a deal we're getting close don't you think i mean well, i don't even know close that on this thing. you know i laugh about like you know it's very cool that boston dynamics models the kind of human body as this very complex mechanical machine and in a way it is but um no one never necessarily states that the human body is the best <laughs> mechanical representation True. for a robot True. so True. It's kind of the same thing. Like, do I need to um, emulate the human brain in function or only in form and function or just is the functional yeah. equivalence of how, what it does and how it works sufficient? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we might find that even if one-to-one replication of form is a bit elusive, if the function is the same at the end of the day, yeah 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 well look at tars on interstellar right and the he had a companion was it mars and tars the the flat based uh um assistance right that yeah, they yeah. had and they would have arms and legs that would come out of the bottom that would morph to what they needed to be to do things that that was not necessarily i mean it was actually some really good thought on what's the most effective way to create uh, like we we've been created by by millions of years of of evolution and how that how that that got things right each time or maybe even wrong but we we were we were what's left right you know you get a chance to redesign that maybe it looks a little bit different yep. you know it's a good thought it's a good thought yeah yeah even a neural net right we begin to kind of think about how does that copy the synopsis of the human brain is that necessary like do we is that the is the human brain the pinnacle of of evolution or are there different ways of oh boy it's getting pretty dark we should probably stop on this (laughs) oh i don't know good lars lars and tars is what it was yeah thanks that's uh thanks for getting that um uncle marv to back to your comment christian uncle marv said tier one tech support will be at risk as well ai being looked at for self heal common it issues and even support being able to 
quickly get to information that would help me do that. That may be something we don't have to do anymore. Brian says, uh, so many jobs will change. They've been changing, by the way, right? We, we, this isn't a new thing, but we know that. Some will be eliminated, but the tasks themselves, too, I think others will be created. Maybe it will allow us to do smarter things. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to, to see. I mean, Christian, you do software development. Do you, do you feel a threat to what you do? Not yet, but ask me in 10 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, a, a good discussion, uh, certainly on this. I think maybe the most in-depth we've had on it. Thanks for spending some time digging. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything else you'd add on that? Or is that, that yeah, a good start? A pretty good wrap. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll lose all the students in the philosophy classroom if we, uh, <laughs> we go to the next round. Uh, down, so. Well, um, it, we're going to, can you stay around for a little bit of a post show? I want to, yeah. I want to wrap it. If you're listening to the live uh, hangout, uh, Christian's been doing an interesting, well, he's been getting his pilot's license and I want to, share that a little bit. So we'll do that in the post show. We make the post show available on the live channel on YouTube. So I think if you go to youtube.com slash the average guy TV, something like that gets you there. If you want to catch this uh, uh, later, uh, if you want to do it, or if you're listening to the podcast, the, the regular podcast, I cut this part out already. It's not there. When you get to the end, it'll be gone. So you'll need to go to that live channel or you can join us on Patreon theaverageguy.tv slash Patreon. You don't, it's five bucks a month if you want to do that. We, we don't do a lot of things, but help support the network if you want to jump in there. But I, I um, we'll wrap it up here. Christian, thanks for coming in tonight. Hang around for a minute. Let me wrap this thing up and then uh, and we'll, we'll ask you about your, pilot, your pilot's license. How does that sound? Cool. Sounds like okay. a plan. So a couple of reminders on the way out. Let me make this fast. Of course, we talked about this a bit in the beginning of the show, but I'll talk about it at the end. Big thanks to Maple Grove Partners. Secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. If you need something uh, done, Christian can probably do it. MapleGrovePartners.com. And again, we mentioned that at the beginning, but check them out. If you want to head over into the Discord group, if you got questions, Christian's over there as well. You can join us. The That doesn't cost you anything. TheAverageGuy.tv slash Discord. And if you've been in the Discord groups before where it's just a spammy mess, this is not one of those. So it's a very it's a very well done, self-moderated. I mean, I don't, I don't have to do anything with it. Everybody's super cool in there. Can ask any question you want. Uh the average guy.tv slash Discord. Leave me a message if you got a question. Maybe this spurred some questions. You want to make a comment. If you got to keep it under 30 seconds, but head out to uh, homegadgetgeeks.com and uh, there's a uh, microphone in the bottom right hand corner. We'll get that done. Leave a message, send me an email, Jim at the average guy.tv and let me know that you did that so that, uh, that I'll go out and we'll play it in the next episode. We are live every Thursday, 8 PM central nine Eastern out here at the average guy.tv slash live. Randy Walker joins us next week. So come back for that uh, later in September. I got Paul Brarin coming back and I'll be filling in some guests in between now and then we'd love to have uh, you come back and join us live. Big thanks to Joe, Brian, Uncle Marv, John. John, good to have you stay out this late. It's nice that you don't have to go to work the next day and you can stay out here and do that. Um, uh, Jim Shoemaker joined us as well as Ken and Tony a little bit earlier. Appreciate you guys. Uh, we'll be back next week with Randy. Uh, join us live when we do that. TheAverageGuy.tv slash live. Thanks for coming out for the live show. With that, we'll say goodbye. Good night.